Good job, worship assistants. Thank you for being here this morning. Today we come to the culmination of our Advent sermon series on what's called the Christ Hymn in Colossians chapter 1, this beautiful section that contains so much of the focus of the New Testament's teaching on who Christ is and what he's done. And appropriately this morning, the the focus on Christ as the peacemaker really summarizes and magnifies all that has come before in this passage. That Christ, as Lord of creation, rules and sustains all things by the power of his might. And that as Lord of redemption, he reconciles and rules over his people. And this rule, of course, this reign, is a reign of peace. For Christ himself is called the Prince of Peace. And it was peace that was proclaimed to the shepherds on that first Christmas night by the host of heaven. And it's peace that the promise of Christmas brings to a world that needs it. So I'll read from the whole passage this morning, and we'll focus in on verses 19 through 22. Young worshipers, I hope that you've noticed this. In the very back of your bulletin, beginning on page 13, is the work for young worshipers. And if you turn over to page, well, it's right there on page 13. As I read, there's a question for you this morning. Write down all of the titles for Jesus that you can find in these verses So Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 15. He, Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you... Who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister." All flesh is like grass, and its glory is like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flower fades, but these words of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Almighty God, you have given your only begotten Son to take our nature upon him and to be born this day of a pure virgin. Grant that we who have been born again and made your children by adoption and grace may be daily renewed by your Holy Spirit through Jesus Christ our Lord. To with you and the Holy Spirit be honor and glory now and forever. Amen. And would you be seated? It occurs to me that there are a few different ways to think about achieving peace 
in a divided age. And of course, peace is the theme for Christmas, for Christians and non-Christians alike. So I think it's important to understand what we are talking about when we beg for peace on earth during this season. And one way of thinking about it in our world today, you might call peace through conquest. The basic idea is that peace can only be achieved by a show of power and a subjection of one side of a conflict to another. Now, the tools of this approach are, of course, intimidation and force. And it should be noted that throughout world history, those tools have been known to achieve something that looks like peace for various periods of time. But the other way to think about peace might be called peace through conformity. That is, the idea that peace comes through enlightenment to a particular ideal, and that once there is sufficient conformity to a set of ideas or moral commitments, peace can be achieved. The tools of this approach, as you're probably aware, are things like social media and hashtags and celebrity and all sorts of things. And to be fair, there can be sometimes these things can be effective in achieving something that begins to resemble peace insofar as the non-conforming can be silenced. But both approaches actually share the same fatal flaw. Peace through conquest assumes a moral high ground that can be achieved by one group over another, justifying actions which are actually immoral when held against the objective standard of an absolute moral God. And peace through conformity assumes an intellectual high ground that can be attained by a select few, justifying actions which are actually foolish and nonsensical when held against the objective standard of absolute truth. In other words, both of these approaches to peace take their point of departure from human pride. But as we've said over and over in recent weeks, the real secret, the real power of the gospel is not pride, but divine humility as represented in the incarnation. That the one through whom and for whom all things were created condescended to become like his creatures in order to effect real peace on earth. And it is a peace which both conquers and conforms. That is, the Prince of Peace does actually subdue all things to himself, as we've seen. And he does actually conform his people into his own image to embody the peace and love that he provides. But, notice that the tools used by this king are not the tools used by the peacemakers of this world. How does Jesus... Lord of creation, Prince of peace, seek to bring that peace to bear. Not by intimidation or force or shaming or influence, but through the humiliation of his incarnation and his death, which precede his resurrection and exaltation through which he now sits enthroned as the conquering Lord of creation and redemption. 
And that is the remarkable truth that Paul is aiming at in this Christ hymn. No wonder it's a mouthful. It's jam-packed with beautiful theological truth that the peace of Christ reconciles creation to order and it reconciles strangers to God. It both conquers and it conforms, but it does so in ways that will absolutely surprise you. So how does it conquer? Well, Paul first tells us in verses 19 and 20 that God in Christ is reconciling creation to order. So in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. This refers to the incarnation and the truth that in assuming to himself our nature, Christ was nevertheless not giving up his divinity. He wasn't, as the false teachers in the city of Colossae taught, He wasn't some lesser divine being through which humans communicated with God. He himself is fully God and fully man. And through the God-man Jesus Christ, God is reconciling all things to himself. And the all things there really does mean all things. Or as Kevin Malone from The Office might say, every of the things Well, how do we know? Paul qualifies it, whether things on heaven or things on earth. Yeah, that pretty much covers all things. And then he tells us the means through which Christ achieves this peace, through the blood of his cross. Okay, there's so much to say here. I promise I'll get you out before dark. But notice first the tools that Christ is using to effect this peace, not coercion or conformity but his own death, his blood spilt on the cross. You see, again, this is the upside-downness of the gospel, that the king would come to die and that this would be the means through which he would effect peace in the world that he made. But then what does it mean that this peace reconciles all things to God? Is the apostle Paul a universalist? Does he think that regardless of creed, All creatures will ultimately be made right with God in the face of his holiness and righteousness. No, he doesn't mean that. Perhaps you're familiar with what Paul says elsewhere to the Romans, that unless you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and God raised him from the dead, that is how we come to be saved. But what Paul means here is that whether we like it or not, through the death of Christ, All things have been subjected again to his order and will one day come to confess Christ as Lord either in glad submission or in stinging and eternal angst and longing. And that Christ in his incarnation and death has begun to reverse the curse enacted on the creation itself. The Lord of creation has come to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. It was the Dutch prime minister and theologian Abraham Kuyper who once said, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. He is Lord of all, creator of the universe, and part of his reconciling work is to come and restore order to his creation, which itself was cursed 
by our fall into sin. He comes to introduce peace on earth, and that peace will extend to every fiber of his creation. That peace was wrought in his first coming, his first advent, and it will be brought to completion at his second. When thorns will no longer infest the ground and hurricanes will no longer destroy and when wars will cease and when the cultures of the world will bring their glory into the kingdom of God and when the wolf will lie down with the lamb and when the work that you are given to do will no longer be futile and when children no longer die young and when viruses no longer spread and when women are no longer objectified and children no longer abused and when darkness itself will be no more. This is the peace that Christmas promises. And it comes not first through coercion or conformity, but very clearly by the blood of his cross. The Lord of creation submitting himself to death. And this is good news. But it wouldn't be much use to humanity if none of us were here to enjoy it. If we remained enemies of this Lord of creation because of our violation of his created order. If we remained strangers and aliens by virtue of our sin and the darkness within us. But friends, Christmas teaches us that the peace of Christ also reconciles strangers to God. Not only does the Lord of creation come to make peace by subduing creation under his rule, he comes to make peace as Lord of redemption by reconciling his people to himself. Look at verses 21 and 22. Christ has come to make us who were once alienated, hostile in mind, enemies of God. He has come to make us friends and to conform us to his own image as he presents us before the throne of God. But again, look at the tool he uses to bring about this conformity. It's not social media shaming or ideological conformity. Paul says that he reconciles us in his body of flesh by his death. Now, this is so important. How does the Lord of Redemption, the Prince of Peace, conform us to his image? Well, he does so by taking on our nature and dying in our place. And if you've been around Christianity for any length of time, you hopefully are aware that this is the central idea of our faith. That God came in flesh with a real body and a rational soul and took the punishment for his followers by dying in their place, enduring the wrath of God for sin, though he himself had never sinned. So understand the mechanics of this, that the God-man died for his enemies to turn them into friends. A theologian, Miroslav Volf, puts it this way, it's not that Christ is some third-party just being, reconciling an angry God to a sinful world. No, that leads to the pitfall of moralism, that God is a just and aloof judge who's angry with our performance. But neither is it that Christ merely reconciles a sinful world to a loving God. No, this leads to the pitfall of antinomianism, that God is 
some hippie cool dad who looks the other way while we choose our own destruction. But instead, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. In other words, God assumes upon himself the punishment for sin, paying the debt that we should have paid, and therefore he reconciles us to himself. You see, he is both just judge and loving father at the same time because in Christ all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. He is God incarnate. Rachel Den Hollander gives this illustration. When you take out a loan, you owe a debt to a banker, right? Now, let's say your rich aunt decides to pay that bet. And by the way, shout out to the rich aunts in the room. Welcome. Merry Christmas to you. And so she calls up the banker and she wires the money and she wires it to the banker. And now the banker, your former debt holder, now writes satisfied on the note. Notice how two things are separated in this illustration, grace and justice. The grace comes from the rich aunt who loves you enough to pay your debt through no act of your own. And the justice comes from the banker who is obligated to write satisfied on the note because the debt has been paid. But you see, in the gospel, God is both just judge and gracious father. He holds the note of your debt, but he himself has paid the price to satisfy it. In the gospel, grace and justice are held together. Because the one who has been wronged assumes the punishment for that wrong in himself and therefore satisfies his own righteous requirement. Making peace in his body of flesh by his death turning strangers into sons and daughters through faith in his name. And here's the thing about sons and daughters. In the healthiest of families, they are neither abusively conquered nor forcibly conformed. That is, in the healthiest of families, sons and daughters gladly submit to the good rule of their parents. The parents of young kids are probably chuckling at that this morning. And they gladly imitate the goodness and beauty they see in their parents. The problem is, for many of us, that is far from the reality of our experience in a fallen world or in a broken family system. We see things like abuse and coercion and conflict and injustice and we revert to conquest or conformity to bring about the peace we so long for. But I encourage you to think about the promise of Christmas this way. The peace that you long for, it doesn't come through coercion. It doesn't come through a tactic or a tool or a party or some self-realization. It comes through the radical humility of the Lord of creation who took on your nature in order to die in your place and bring you back to himself. Bringing peace with God and the birth pangs of peace on earth. And he promises to return again. And in his kingdom, no sword is drawn but the sword of righteousness. And no strength is known but the strength of love. And people from every nation will be gathered together under the banner of the Prince of Peace 
to whom be dominion and glory now and forever. This is the hope of Christmas, through Christ the peacemaker. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Gracious Father, you bring peace on earth because of the death of your Son in our place. You bring peace in our hearts, making strangers into friends, aliens into sons and daughters. Through faith in the name of Jesus Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection. And I pray this morning that if there are hearts in this room estranged to you, that they would believe in the name of Jesus. Call out to the one who died in our place and didn't stay dead, rose again from the grave and ascended, is seated at your right hand and even now ruling and reigning in our hearts. So King of glory, come and may we respond to your goodness with the love and the peace that the gospel affords. In Jesus' name, amen.